Warning, the following broadcast is not intended to be a substitute for legal advice or firearm safety, competence, or proficiency training. This broadcast is solely for entertainment, discussion, and informational purposes. Side effects may include a sudden undeniable urge to exercise your Second Amendment rights, and you may in fact turn into a gun nut. You've been warned. And welcome to another episode of Locked, Loaded, and Legal. I'm your host, Jose Morales. And I'm Mike Jeremita. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the tactical and legal considerations of protecting others. And this is a question I get all the time. I'll have folks come over to me, they'll say, Mike, I carry on a regular basis, or Mike, I carry everywhere I can legally carry. What are my rights and obligations in defending a third party? And we spend a whole lot of time focusing on when we can use force or deadly force to protect ourselves, our own life, our own safety and well-being. Uh, but sometimes what goes ignored is the idea of protecting a third party, protecting somebody else. Now, here in Pennsylvania, we're going to talk about some of the standards. Understand that these are laws that vary from state to state, so it's going to depend upon your local jurisdiction. So if you're unsure about the laws in your state, be sure to seek competent counsel, attend a training seminar or something of that nature, and familiarize yourself with these laws. So when it comes to defense of a third party, some states have what's known as a relationship requirement, particularly when it comes to deadly force, meaning they reserve the use of deadly force of, uh, in protection of a third party if the person you're defending is, let's say, a parent or a child or a spouse or a sibling or something of that nature. In Pennsylvania, we have no such relationship requirement. So the context we get is, let's say, I'm in the gas station in the middle of the night and I'm in the aisle looking for some beef jerky and in walks Chris the criminal with his firearm, walks straight up to the clerk, puts it to the clerk's head and says, but cash in the bag, you're going to die. What happens? Now, first thing you got to understand is in Pennsylvania, there's no legal obligation to intervene. So what that means is that if you're looking for that beef jerky, for all the law cares, you can continue to look for that beef jerky. You can even kind of probably cower and wait until the individual <laughs> leaves, cower holding gently your beef jerky. Right. You can duck behind that aisle and try to crawl away or something of that nature. Uh, no obligation to intervene. But would the law justify you in intervening using force or deadly force? I want to go through the standard here in Pennsylvania. There is, there's a three-part standard that you have to understand. The first requirement would be, if you were in the shoes of the person you're protecting, would you be justified in using the force that you're about to use? So if you're about to you know, use deadly force to protect that party, if you were in the shoes of the person you're protecting, would you be justified in using deadly force? So if you're that clerk and, you have, and you're having a gun held to your head by someone that you don't know, using harsh language, asking you to empty that cash drawer... Right. From their perspective. So so in, in that type of a situation, the second requirement is would the person you're protecting themselves be justified in using that type of force? 
And if we're talking deadly force, it's deadly force. Now, when you're talking about deadly force, uh, many and this particularly in the context of somebody pointing a gun at another person's head, this is a situation where the same facts might cover those first two requirements. And the final requirement is it must appear that intervention is immediately necessary to prevent the harm. So in other words, if you don't intervene, if you don't get involved, that this harm is going to happen. And if a jury finds that all three of those requirements are met, then you'd be justified in using force or deadly force to protect that third party. Now, do you know, do you think it would make sense to just remind our audience what exactly is deadly force? Sure. Under Pennsylvania law, deadly force is justified when you have a reasonable belief that deadly force is necessary to prevent death, serious bodily injury, kidnapping, or intercourse by force or threat. For the purposes of conversation, we often call that last one rape. But the definition of deadly force is any type of force that's readily capable of causing death or serious bodily injury. So it doesn't have to cause death or serious bodily injury. It just needs to be uh, readily capable of causing death or serious bodily injury. One thing you got to keep in mind is this is all evaluated under the facts and circumstances as you reasonably believe them to be. So these three standards, right, these three criteria in that defense of others standard, they're going to be evaluated under the facts and circumstances as you reasonably believe them to be. Important for two reasons. First, you can have a reasonable belief that is inaccurate. The law doesn't require you to be all-knowing or a mind reader or anything of that nature. So let's say the gun is actually made out of plastic, but it looks incredibly real. If a jury finds that your belief was reasonable under those circumstances, then you would in fact be justified. But you could also have an honest, good faith belief that is utterly unreasonable, right? If you make a decision and you act... Uh, in a manner different than a reasonable person would under those same or similar circumstances, then, you know, you would not be justified. If a jury finds that your action, your belief was unreasonable, you wouldn't be justified. So, for example, let's say that plastic gun was an orange super soaker and you legitimately thought it was real. The jury can find that your belief was unreasonable. So facts and circumstances as you reasonably believe them to be. Now, I think this is an excellent segue into the practical side of this sort of stuff. Now, I think this is an excellent segue into the practical side of this sort of stuff, particularly because you'll have to pretty quickly assess these situations, Jose. Isn't that true? Um, absolutely. You're going to have to make snap decisions very, very quickly. And, you know, as we explain these concepts, you know, information tends to be the key in all these scenarios, right? We need to gather as much information as possible to make the correct and reasonable decisions. Um, and it requires us knowing what the heck is happening. So um, give you a quick scenario, an example of, uh, you know, a scenario, an individual walks in and sees a, a woman being beaten by a man. And he pulls out the gun and he, he points it at the police, at the individual rather, the male, because of course males, you know, have, uh, have the advantage of usually size and strength. And come to find out that he pulled the gun on a vice cop trying to arrest a, a, a prostitute, mm. right? Um, you know, was your belief reasonable at the time? Uh, perhaps, but, you know, I tell people you have to have as much information as possible um, in order to make those, those decisions. They can't be snapped decisions based on emotion so a really good scenario that i remember recently 
was the uh, the barbershop shooting scenario where an individual was uh, in a barbershop here in Philadelphia and they were sitting getting their hair cut and I believe it was either it was a concealed carrier um, and they the couple of assailants uh, came on in they pulled guns out they started pointing the guns at the individuals at the, in the in the barbershop demanding the wallets and demanding them to get on the on the ground and there was a point at which I believe uh, the the two the two criminals tried to round everybody up and uh, and move them uh, herd them to the back of the store and that is when the individual who uh, was carrying produced from under his un- under the cape mm. uh, you know the his gun and shot the uh, and shot the assailant he shot one and the other ran off okay so that was a situation in which he gathered all of his information assessed the situation properly and then acted when he was reasonably believed that deadly force was necessary you know talk about the element of surprise in that one right that was an oh snap <laughs> situation like, wait a second it'd what be is great this? to walk around in one of those barber shop capes constantly right <laughs> well you know it's really funny that we say this right because i remember that uh, in, in a previous episode i mentioned those two life-changing scenarios mm-hmm. uh, one was actually at when i was getting my hair cut at a barber years ago really absolutely he um he came in early and it was in an area you know was in in the hood uh, but he was a great barber i would have literally gone to the top of a tree to get haircuts from him so i'll pick up where i left off this life-changing story when we come back from our break And we're back with Locked, Loaded, and Legal. Just a reminder to visit us at LockedLoadedAndLegal.com. You can find our contact information as well as our social media platforms. Remember, we're here for you, the listener. So, Jose, when we left off, we were talking about some of the stories that impacted your life with the decision to carry. And you were telling us about a time you were at the barbershop. And for me, I'm just picturing it sort of like a television program flashback scene where you've got this older hairstyle because we're going back in time now. Absolutely. And for those of us listening uh, listening out there uh, to the podcast, um, you got to go to our website at lockloadedandlegal.com and see my profile picture and you'll understand the, the joke. But yes, that was about <laughs> seven or eight years ago. That was a life-changing moment where actually I was actually getting my hair cut at my barber at the time and uh, he came in a little bit extra early um to to get to to service me and we're um you know we're talking or what have you and it was must have been eight in the morning in an area that usually is not really you know bustling until at least noon so an individual walks on in asking some really kind of bizarre questions and you ever been in a situation where literally the hairs on the back of your arms Mm. stand up and it was a very he was the questions he was asking were very bizarre and uh, his vibe is really weird and i really follow kind of my instincts so that was the, you know the scenario in which i was kind of reaching to see where my gun was to try to access it underneath the cape come to find out it was home in my safe because mm-hmm. i didn't think i needed it that day mm-hmm. um and so i'm glad that the individual that uh, that was at that barbershop in philadelphia that was able to kind of save all those uh, other patrons had his firearm with him that day and he made some wise choices again you can't use what you don't have 
have. Uh, but you have to be able to assess the situation and see what a reasonable person acted the way I act and, and followed your footsteps. Hmm. And it's interesting you talked about he's asking some bizarre questions. So this is something where situational awareness would come into play, like you mentioned in the previous episode. Do you remember what kinds of questions he was asking? Was it like, do you sell hot dogs here or something? Like, I don't remember exactly the questions, but I do remember he gave me the vibe of, um, that maybe my barber was dating his girlfriend. It was very oh, bizarre. He was okay. asking him really some kind of conference. It wasn't the question so much as the tone of them. Okay. Um, really kind of accusational and stuff. And the guy was, man, my barber was like, no, bro, I, you know, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. Right. And he was getting really aggressive in a, in, and it was out of place. It wasn't a normal interaction. Yeah. And that's what stood out. That, that, that normalcy wasn't there. And I was kind of like, okay, let me just go ahead and reach for my gun. Just, oh, wait a second. I don't have my gun. It's at yeah. home in my gun safe. So it was a learning experience. That kind of sounds like that story. I don't know if you remember this, but this, this guy actually killed an older gentleman while streaming it live on Facebook. He was asking him these very strange questions if he knew people and insisting that the guy knew somebody. Very, very, very sad video. I don't know if. You folks have seen it, but you know, almost brought me to tears. It felt so bad for this older gentleman who was just minding his own business and ultimately is killed by this crazy person. Um, but sounds like a similar sort of situation, line of questioning. We have to be aware of what's happening. We have to, you know, we have to um, trust our instincts. And if something doesn't feel right, then there's something probably isn't right. And we need to be able to be in tune with that. And also, like we mentioned in other episodes, you know, have plans in place. Have plans in place. Just don't have a knee-jerk reaction. Have plans in place to be able to, uh, to address those situations. And pace yourself and identify to see if there is going to be a threat and have an option in the event that there is, if that makes any sense. Right. And it's always best to have a plan in place, not only for the practical side, but for the legal side. So you understand uh, how to appropriately respond to these sorts of situations. So one of the things that comes to my mind when we talk about defense of others, I did a training course uh, qualification with simulations training with a police department out west in the Pittsburgh area. I was fortunate enough to be invited to do so with the officers. And after each scenario under these simulation training active shooter type scenarios, uh, we'd, we'd break them down and debrief and talk about what happened. And there was a scenario that I was in particularly where you're in a drugstore and guy walks up to the cashier pointing a rifle at her head and starts barking out orders. Now, my reaction was take a step to the side, get a good angle, and I put two bullets in the guy's back, and he drops. So when we stop, the gentleman who runs the course, retired Pennsylvania State Trooper, asked me, now, were you legally obligated to intervene? I said, no, recited the entire standard and everything of that nature. He said, so then why did you intervene? And my just instinctive response as a human being was, well, if that was my wife behind the cash register and there was a good guy with a gun standing 10 feet away, I would hope that they would uh, you know, have the presence of mind to intervene under those circumstances. So that's why I made that decision in that scenario and would likely make that decision in real life. But that in mind, people need to understand that there may be civil implications, right? Civil liability when you're intervening 
on behalf of a third party to protect a third party. Well, there's civil liabilities for walking down the street and slipping on ice. You know, Absolutely. It's, it, remi- it reminds me that what you um, just mentioned, the story reminds me of something that Masada Yuba said in one of his classes. He said, you know, you can opt not to act in a situation. You can opt not to, but then you have to be the individual that stares at that reflection in the mirror every day when you shave, right. knowing that you could have done something, but you were too weak or too afraid or too cowardly to have gone to the aid of someone. And it's a slippery slope. It really is a slippery slope. But that's a really good point. Would I want a card-carrying good guy to have protected my wife Mm. or my loved one if they were in that situation? The answer is absolutely. But as a firearms instructor, I'm going to just stick a little caveat in there and say not if it's beyond their skill set to do so. Mm -hmm. Okay? If you're putting them in danger by doing so? Absolutely. You know, if you don't know, you know, defensive shooting targets, if you don't know um, the most vulnerable areas on on a, uh, a, I'll give you that example that you were in, right? If the individual had a shotgun or a rifle or a gun with their finger on the trigger and you don't really shoot them in the the appropriate place, they may have a flinch reaction and 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 if that gun is pointed at the head of or the uh, the the person they may it may discharge you know a lot of times we just don't pay attention and i'm not criticizing what you did i'm just you know enlightening our listeners uh you know we as card carrying good guys need to be aware of these things and practice how many of you guys um and girls how many of you actually practice verbal commands get down show me your hands mm-hmm. don't move you know, I do that quite often, especially when there's no one in my home because my wife looks at me like I'm crazy. Right. If I start screaming, get down, get down now. But we are creatures that, you know, we're mammals. We're going to bark. We're going to say something. So it's important for us to practice these scenarios before we need to execute them. Yeah. So two, two quick points on that. You talked about verbal commands. Now, in this particular situation, when we broke it down, he actually asked me, why or were you legally obligated to give a verbal command under these circumstances? Answer is absolutely. Absolutely not, because it's immediately necessary under those circumstances, or at least I'm very confident that a jury would find that you had that reasonable belief that it was immediately necessary under those circumstances. And he actually brought to light that in the remainder of the scenario, many times uh, folks, even law enforcement, will start to give those commands and the guy shoots the clerk anyway. So sometimes in these situations, they don't respond appropriately to verbal commands. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Now, when you're talking about using force or deadly force, uh, given your skill set, sure, certainly great to keep in mind that you don't want to try to do so much and do harm, right? That's like your, your wife's a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. And so what's that Hippocratic oath? Uh, do, do no, no harm. harm. Do no harm, right? <laughs> At least that's what I hear it is. I'm not entirely familiar with it. But uh, in these situations for civil implications to come into play. You'll have to evaluate negligent or gross negligent standards that we'll talk about when we get back. And we're back with Locked, Loaded, and Legal. When we left, we were talking about standards for negligence and gross negligence in using force or deadly force to protect a third party. So one of the things that's problematic in these situations, you were speaking about making sure that you're trained and and properly prepared to protect a third party, and perhaps you don't want somebody intervening on behalf of that third party, on behalf of your loved one, if they haven't adequately trained or if they're going to create more harm than necessary. You spoke about 
um, perhaps being in a situation where you create a reflex and hit the person in the wrong portion of the body and they end up shooting your loved one anyway. The issue that we see in the legal context is to tell somebody not to intervene at all is to tell them you'd rather leave your life or your loved one's life in the hands of Chris the criminal who's pointing that gun at their head at uh, you know close range in that situation. So you're saying, I like my chances better to trust Chris the criminal that he's not going to pull the trigger and shoot me in the head than you taking some sort of shot. And I think that would be very, very difficult to convince a jury that you, you'd rather trust the criminal. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and what I was trying to say was not, was what I was trying to get across really was not to not do something. But we're all listening to this broadcast because we want to educate ourselves and learn. And we have talked about time and time again practicing these scenarios as well. I firmly believe with the response, with the privilege of owning a firearm comes the responsibility of knowing and training with that firearm. It's very, very important. So to that end, since I choose to kind of carry a gun, I, I try to practice and train as much as possible. So absolutely, positively, decide whether or not, first of all, if you have the wherewithal to actually use that gun. A lot of people say, well, I don't know. And so, you know, we talked about that before. So can you actually use the gun if you needed to? And then I urge individuals to practice, to train realistically so that if there's even the the smallest chance you might defend an individual, you know how to um, how to shoot a threat from multiple angles. It's one thing to shoot a piece of paper, and it's another thing to have a 360-degree dynamic understanding of the body. And based on where uh, that individual is, is standing, that the those points of aim change. So we need to know that, you know? Again, action is always, you know, better than, than inaction in a situation like that. It's better to do something than to trust Chris the criminal. What I try to tell people to do is, you know, load yourself up for success by educating yourself and knowing. And, and, and in terms of verbal commands, sometimes verbal commands don't work, but at least they give you an option and they may distract the uh, the individual. If you say, you know, you know, drop that gun very forcefully. I'm not going to scream it out because I don't want to pop the mics here. Mm-hmm. Um, and they turn to you. They point. Well, then you know the gun isn't pointed at the bad guy or girl. You may they may have stopped and said, or the good guy or girl rather, the gun. They may opt to put the gun down. They may opt to realize, oh wow, this isn't this is an airsoft gun, and he's got a real gun pointed at me. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to de-escalate. You never know. Could. But have plans in place and practice those things. And these are all tools in the toolbox if we're going to be carrying and, and possibly protecting others. They could opt to pull the trigger as well. Absolutely could. Yeah. Sure. And we talked about, you know, they don't have to, you know, have the gun pointed at you for you to actually pull the trigger and fire back. And there's no right or wrong, black or white. Yeah. You know, there's no, it's all gray, right? Yeah. Well, that, that's one of the, the concerns that people often have. They say, well, Mike, if I'm shooting Chris the criminal in the back, is that a problem? Well, if you're alleging that you're protecting your own life, then yeah, that's a problem. You're shooting him in the back. But in these situations, you're defending a third party, so it comes from their perspective, uh, following those three criteria that we discussed earlier. And, you know, using a little common sense goes a a long way. In my classes, you know, I, I ask, can you shoot someone in the back? And the knee jerk reaction is no. And I go, well, what if they're trying to drag your daughter into the back of a black panel van or they're holding a knife to your wife's throat and uh, the only angle you have is behind them? I go, absolutely can. 
but you should know your angles of fire so it doesn't go through the skull of the bad person into your wife. And you should know the best angle and place to shoot in the back of the head if you needed to, to instantly take the the, the aggressor down. Those are two really important parts to to that whole solution. One of the other things that comes to mind... I was with Todd Hoover last night, Corporal Hoover. He we was love giving Todd. a seminar. Shout out to Todd. He's great. Uh, he is great. And one of the things he asked the audience, how many of us train with moving targets? We didn't see any hands. We didn't see any hands. That's something that's, uh, I think, grossly underutilized in training. What Absolutely. Do do how many people move off the line of attack when they're shooting or, or when they're reloading? You know, I was practicing um, some revolver reloads the other day because I was telling you about we're going to have a defensive handgun class. And I was practicing some revolver reloads with my wife's revolver. And I'm dropping the, you know, dropping the rounds, moving to the side, loading, moving back, you know, moving off of the X, so to speak. One of the things that we didn't discuss so far, and I think is incredibly important with defending a third party, perhaps interacting with law enforcement officers. Oh, really important. After or even during an incident where you're defending a third party. And this is an especially hot topic. You know, you hear it in the news today, especially with the quote-unquote controversy of having police officers in schools, the argument from the uh, anti-gunners as well. The police are going to come on in, and they're not going to know who to shoot, and so how can we arm our teachers? Uh, And that makes absolutely no sense because anyone who's taken a basic uh, defensive handgun class or a concealed carry course, we teach this. This is what we teach so that the police officers uh, can, you know, you can be identified to them and you know how to identify yourself to police officers. And this is not something that's new to our society. We've had concealed carry laws in this country for well over a decade. We've got, you know, almost two decades of data from you know various different states and in Pennsylvania particularly, we've got over a million people with a license to carry, and if this was going to be an issue, then we'd know about it by now. Can you name any stories where the good guy had to intervene and he was shot by the cops when they showed up? You know any stories like that? I can't think of any. I can't, I can't think of any. of any, and I'm sure that they'd use these stories to really highlight their point if that was the case, right? Right, well, absolutely. I mean, even, like I said, even criminals, they, they know the law. It's that, that, like that story we're talking about. If you don't want to be shot by a police officer, one of the things you don't you should avoid is having a handgun in your hand at the time that you interact with a law enforcement officer. Right, so securing the firearm, right? That's number absolutely. one. Absolutely. Secure the firearm, but reholster your firearm, put the gun down, uh, get rid of the gun, and put your hands you know, in plain sight. They should be visible. Um, that's really common sense. Something as simple as fingers separated while your hands are visible, right? Because the hands are, that's at least what they're taught through Pennsylvania State Police. The hands are what hurt. And, and uh, you know, making those visible, that really eliminates the threat. Hands are, yeah, hands are always going to be the threat. So, you know, and this is a fodder for another episode. But, you know, absolutely, if you hear the sirens uh, in the uh, on the horizon and you know they're coming back or they're coming to you, you know, it would make sense to reholster your gun. But then it takes us back to the to the question, well, do you have a holster? Did mm. your instructor ever say to you the importance of a holster and the importance of a holster with a reinforced mouth so you can reholster? that gun with one hand so that that holster doesn't collapse on itself and you're spending right. you know two minutes trying to rehold bang now or you snag, just discharge right, the gun right. because your fingers you see so all these things are interrelated how many people have come to you after uh, discharging their firearm negligently while reholstering at least 10 at least 10 at least 10 have contacted me um yeah. over the past i would say two or three years um, and you have contacted me for, because of discharges and NDs, um, negligent discharges um, during some process of the holstering or reholstering process. 
Now, the negligence standard from a civil standpoint is whether the person exercised due care. Did they act as a reasonable person would under the same or similar circumstances? And if you don't meet that standard of care, if you've had a duty, you've breached that duty. So that's something to take into account. We say negligent discharge. Uh, there are truly no accidents in these situations, right? Right. Because right. you haven't exercised the proper care in in your actions. Absolutely. In the probably first or second page, if not, you know, in, not on the cover, right, of uh, pretty much any gun um, manual is are the firearm safety rules. Mm -hmm. Right. And one of them is keep your finger off the trigger until you're ready to fire. Mm -hmm. And another is always keep the gun pointed in a safe direction. Mm -hmm. So if you follow those two rules and nothing else, yeah, it's impossible to have a negligent discharge. But the problem is we have grasp reflexes, right? right. We have guns are ergonomically designed so that when you grab the gun, your fingers automatically on the trigger. That's what nature you know, dictates your finger's going to be on the trigger. We have to train you to put your finger on the frame of the gun because it's unnatural to hold your finger on the frame of the gun. And that's where, again, training and proper practice, um, you know, comes in. Now, you can keep your finger off the trigger, but might it be difficult to uh, have the firearm pointed in a safe direction while you're reholstering in a cheap holster or a defective holster? Yeah, absolutely. If that holds coming pretty close to your body, right? But then again, right, right. Also, do you have a gun belt? Do you can you can uh -huh. have an eighty-five dollar you know Bianchi holster or Galco holster, really mm -hmm. nice holster. But then if your gun belt is a substandard belt because we got it from you know from uh, the men's store in Macy's or something, now mm -hmm. that that belt isn't designed to secure and hold that holster flush against your body and keep that gun and that holster in one place. Mm -hmm. So now you're fishing around for your holster. Um, there are videos online about that. You know with police Police officers reholstering their guns and bang discharging their, their their firearms again, but no one is born knowing that you need a quality gun belt, a quality holster, um, if you're going to be able to carry a gun. You know? Yeah, not related to holstering the firearm. I don't believe, but my favorite video is the one of that law enforcement officer in the classroom. Yeah, the DEA agent, yeah, the, uh, the famous. I'm the only DEA one agent. qualified and shoots himself in the leg. You know, it's again. It's I, I hate I hate to laugh because that could have been really tragic. Right? Absolutely, but it, yeah. it 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 points at a larger issue, which is you know that 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 proverb I mentioned earlier. You know, the drum that beats the loudest is the one most hollow, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it the immediate the words immediately preceding that discharge was, "I'm the only one qualified enough to hold this or to handle this gun properly." Bang attitude. The moment that we become complacent, the moment that we have an I know it all kind of attitude, I tell people that gun has absolutely no idea how much higher education you have, how much experience right. you have. It does know how much proper training you have. And uh, if you put your finger in that trigger and point it at your foot, bad things are going to happen. And he really played it off like he meant to do that, didn't he? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> he tried he, to hold the it next, in. Yeah, for the next minute, he's, <laughs> he's limping around. And I wouldn't have been able to do that. I, he, I think he shot himself with a Glock in 40, 40 Smith and 40. Wesson. It was a 40. Yeah. Oof. Oh my goodness! I don't want to think about it's it. It's like, dude, go to the hospital. <laughs> you know, and then the post and the post the post uh, interview on in, on YouTube is even funnier. It's it's just very funny. He's like, oh, I can't understand why I'm you know, ostracized, and it's on the internet. And so, oh, you know, really? Yeah, it's pretty. I haven't seen that one. 
guys and girls learn from other people's mistakes. You don't have to learn the hard way. I love it. That's exactly heard that why anywhere? we're here. We're here to teach people that you don't. You have to learn the hard way and to learn from other people's mistakes, you know? So, folks, we've discussed a lot today. We talked about defense of others, not only in the criminal context, but the civil context, that negligence standard and reasonable care. We also talked about some of the practical considerations when defending others uh, from assessing the situation to interacting with law enforcement after the fact. To having plans in place and those skills to be able to execute those plans are really important. They don't happen by magic and they don't happen by just going to the range and, pump and punching holes in paper. It, it doesn't work that way. So we urge everybody that's interested in carrying their gun and protecting others um, to actually learn a little bit and exercise due diligence, caution, and a little bit of common sense, right? And keep us apprised of your progress. Show us how you've become a better gun owner. Thanks, folks, for being here. I'm Mike Jeremita. I'm Jose Morales. Thank you for listening to another episode of Locked, Loaded, and Legal. Stay safe. Take care, folks.